Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. The last few weeks have been focused on healthcare digitalization in the Nordics, and we're going to finish this short series with a discussion about data standards in Europe and healthcare in the Nordics more broadly with Anna Adelov-Krag, partner at Venzo Public and Healthcare, which is an innovative consultancy firm specializing in human-centric digital transformation. Anna has more than 10 years of experience working with governance, strategy and project management within the public and healthcare sector. She was uh, working on projects with the European Commission, Nordic Ministerial Council and more. Enjoy the discussion and do check out other episodes as well, more focused on the secondary use of data in Finland, healthcare in Norway and Denmark. And to browse through other episodes as well, visit our website facesofdigitalhealth.com. Now to the discussion with Anna. So Anna, you currently work in Denmark, but you did a lot of work in Sweden and internationally. You speak Swedish, Danish and Norwegian. So for a brief introduction, what's your opinion of healthcare in the Nordics? How would you describe it in the context of other European countries? Thank you for the question. I think Norwegians would laugh at me if I said I spoke Norwegian, but I, I comprehend what they say and they understand what I say. Looking at the Nordic countries, I think we've been forerunners for quite some time. It's been very digital. Our healthcare sector has been digital for a long time, but there's a lot of heritage uh, that is in there's the structures that has slowed us down in comparison to some other European countries that it's speeded up later on. But in general, I must say, our strength is we have national ID numbers, which help healthcare a lot. We can identify the patient without issues. We have huge broadband coverage. Everyone's basically on a, a bank ID or, or an electronic identifier, which also helps in healthcare, given it's so high security. So digitalization in society in general is very high, even though healthcare might be struggling in some points today, digitalization is high. So that helps in many ways. Compared to other countries, given your question, I would say that the Nordic countries are strong, but not as much as it was before. I think there are some, especially smaller European countries that are doing some great efforts to move fast. Uh, and it helps when you don't have that huge digital uh, heritage behind you. So what you're saying is that if we just checked the e-health infrastructures in the Nordic countries, it's there, but it's getting old because of the legacy systems. That's been the case for many years. I, I think that in all countries in the Nordics, there's a change going on. There's been some huge procurements and uh, there's a big EHR, big support systems being implemented. There's an extreme movement on uh, the patient digitalization so that what the patient can do with their phone or the computer or with digital means so it is definitely changing now but it's been a longer stretch in the nordics to get to that innovative e-health process that we can see in some other countries and uh, mm -hmm. so the heritage has slowed us down a little bit because there's so much to take into account when doing those upgrades so to say 
Is it possible to make any general kind of comparison of how the healthcare system works in general? All the Nordic countries are rich countries, so access to healthcare is a strong societal value, as in basically all the European countries across the region. Is, did you notice any differences or did anything stand out for you? For example, I was really impressed to see that in Sweden, both fathers and mothers get 16 months of paid parental leave after the birth of a child. So that's quite uh, unprecedented in the on the global level. <laughs> yeah, so big questions. I saw uh, Narj's uh, interview with you and I think he said it very well. I think the key in the Nordics is that it's healthcare for all. It doesn't matter if you're a uh, president or if you're you're working at McDonald's, everyone has the same abilities and, and possibilities to get healthcare. And I think that's says a lot for us. That's also in main one reason for the high cost, because it is tax money that pays for healthcare, basically, and, and uh, no other revenue uh, being served. I think despite that we often look at the Nordics as one, there are quite a lot of differences, to be honest. There's the one similarity is, is the fact that we have tax paid healthcare and even the private healthcare providers get their funding from taxation and from the regions and municipalities. But the differences between the Nordic countries are how we structure it, what the legal boundaries are. If you look at Finland, for example, they have a not so new anymore, but they have a, a law that makes it easier to transfer healthcare data between social care and healthcare. In Sweden, we don't have that. So there are some legal barriers that even though technically it would be fine and easily uh, doable, legally there are restrictions and those we're fighting every day. I see differences. I, I lived in Denmark for quite some time. I see differences in how the GPs and the hospitals, how they work and how they work together compared to Sweden and Norway. So there are differences, despite that we don't see it as a that when we look from a, a European level. But I can see that uh, both Norway, Finland and Denmark, or all of them except Sweden, sometimes have it easier to move forward with some uh, technical solutions due to the fact that the Swedish law sometimes hinders. And there are goods and bads about that. It, it protects privacy and uh, patient rights. But there are, of course, issues with not being able to move fast enough due to legal hinders. I was part of the um, Nordic Ministerial Council's e-health group for quite some time, and we did a, a report on indicators of e-health to try to measure how well we were doing and implementing e-health. And there it was evident how different we are in our strategies, despite the fact that it looks the same. Can you mention any specific differences that you noticed through that research? through that project? I think the funding was one thing that we fund in very different ways. In, in Denmark, it's, it's state funded and then sent out. In Sweden, a lot of the money comes straight to the regions or the municipalities. That makes it more difficult to control. Then you need to make legal incentives to ensure that something happens uh, out on the floor. And that's not the same in, in, for example, Denmark, where they can actually bind the money to an action in a different way than we could in Sweden. So that was a huge difference. And then you mentioned the maternity and fraternity leave. It is true that it's 16 months, but there's a level of how much funding you get. It's not, you get 
full pay for 16 months. But I must say it's been a change in our parental leave uh, legislation in Sweden that I can see in some other countries now. In Denmark, for example, they're implementing it now where um, some of the months are bound to the father. And that has made a huge difference, at least in Sweden, even though there were some negativity, just like it is in Denmark today, some negativity around making legal sort of limitations to how much you can take. But I can see that there's been changes both in, in households, in relationships between fathers and, and kids, but more than that, it's been a change for women in their working life, pay raises, opportunities to get other jobs because you're not away as much from the work market. If I go into a little bit of specifics about Sweden, since we were talking about that, it attributes mm. a lot of its GDP to healthcare, 11%. And while the system mm. is universal, it does have some participation fees, but with a high cost ceiling. For example, according to the Swedish law, hospitalization fees are not allowed to surpass 100 Swedish krona, which is equivalent to around 11 US dollars. Mm. Uh, a day prescription drugs have a fee cap and patients never pay more than around 255 US dollars in a one year period. So there's some participation, but it's not like completely free as in some other countries, but it's still very affordable, especially if you compare that to the US system. Can you share maybe any of your personal experiences uh, while you were living in different countries and what were the opinions of people living in these countries regarding the way they see their healthcare system because anytime you want to change the healthcare system that's extremely difficult for example if it's a completely free system and you want to in implement even minimal fees you always get a backlash that basically you're going to have vulnerable groups that are going to be disadvantaged because of that. Knowing your background and uh, research in policy and healthcare systems, how do you see that changes in healthcare uh, are even possible given that we constantly hear that we needed them, but it's a very complicated problem how we can actually achieve any change regardless of how good the ideas are? Great question. I think as we started off saying the the cost limitations in Sweden, it is based on this healthcare for all that you shouldn't be hesitant in seeking healthcare if you need it, uh, which is important. And I've been living in, in the US and my part of my family lives in the US and I know what level of healthcare insurance they pay. I wouldn't afford it. It's uh, humongous and you can see the result of that in the US where people actually avoid going to the doctor. And I'm proud to be living in a country where that's not going to be possible. I know that there, with the state-funded healthcare, disadvantages. And those disadvantages is, like you say, investments. And there's no add-on cash flow that you can use to, to be innovative and implement new systems. And adding fees to something to be able to do that is, is almost impossible. Um, because patients, in my way, shouldn't be the ones paying for it, even though we do buy tax money, but that's a different story. How can we do it? Talking together, being, uh, making sure that we're focused, uh, spending our money wise. I, I worked with Portugal for, for some time where they told me that while they were uh, struggling with their finances was actually their best time in implementing e-health because they needed to be so smart. They needed to ensure that every investment they did was a, making things more efficient and more safe and perhaps it dis, it, 
taking away some of the medical errors that cost them actually more. So during their financial crisis a couple of years back, they made great e-health investments because they had to be really smart with the little money they had. So I don't think that it's impossible to make these achievements with less funding, so to say. You can't spend the world, but I think you need to be smart and you need to make sure that you know what you want. And that's something I see that if you have a little bit too much money, sometimes you throw it a little bit all over the place because you haven't really done that pre-work to see what is it that we really need here to make that. Uh, I can totally uh, understand that, especially since if there's funding that's suddenly made available for some investment, it usually also have has a time period that when that mm -hmm. money needs to be used, which kind of raises the the danger of the money just being used for projects, but not really being used smart. Absolutely. But there are also ways to spend the money better, being more aligned when it comes to what we're procuring, for example, using the same standards because then the vendors don't have to reinvent the wheel every time they go to a new customer, which I would presume, and working on the industry side for quite some time now, I can see that would be a, a money saver as well. It's a collaboration and planning and being good buyers. The, the interoperability part and the data standards, so that, that has been a focus throughout your uh, professional career. So I really want to dig into that a little bit because today we've got a lot of good standards. Some of there are competing standards. So how would you maybe just describe briefly the complexity of international terminology and the difficulty of achieving international interoperability? Sure, we could talk about this for hours. Uh, a bit of a standards note, I guess. I see huge progress. I've been in this for a while now and I see huge progress in just the last five, years in where we're going. I was part of the eHealth network in the EU for quite some time. And in one of our first meetings, we said, we asked around the table, so all 27 countries were involved in this. And we asked, what is the most important issue in eHealth right now? What do we need to solve joined up? Everyone basically said semantic interoperability. We need to be able to talk the same language. We need to be more efficient in how we collect our data to ensure patient safety and, and cost as well, as we talked about before. And still nothing happened because it's complex. It's hard to give up on what you have today because if you need, if you want to change your standard, either you need to change your content in a sense going forward, or you need to do a lot of mappings and a lot of bindings between standards and between what you have today, your heritage today. But I see change. I see that a lot of what we've done has moved forward. I see that the European Commission together with the member countries are moving towards setting Okay, for European healthcare, at least, if we want to transfer data amongst each other, we need to make a decision on a set uh, of standards. And they're doing that. So I do see that the discussion we had 10 years ago around what's the most important and everyone's struggling to actually reach there. I can see that we have gotten a little bit further, at least, and we are moving towards identifying what standards to use, because I think there's a, like you said, there's a thousand flowers uh, blooming. Most of them can work in consolidation, but some of them are more difficult to match and work jointly. And I see in procurements, I see in buying, customers aren't uh, smart enough. I think that's a rude way to say it, but we're not, we heard about all these standards and we say, okay, our solution must be able to talk to all these standards. 
but that's contradictory. We can't work with all. That's difficult and that's that drives costs. So we need to be smart in, in what we know when we want to buy something and we need to be smarter in consolidating. Okay, so what road should we be driving on is my uh, view at least. But SDOs are collaborating more. They're actually looking at how can our standards match? How can they work together? Two products that, and close to my heart, given that before there's no MCT, but two standards that actually don't have the same purpose, but still there's been a rumor about competition and we should use one or the other is WHO's ICD. They're working together now. They're collaborating and they actually have for a long time, but it hasn't been clearly and vocal expressed how they collaborate and how the standards actually match together rather than compete. So I think a lot of it is also about communication and showing how they work together rather than creating these ideas of competition. It's the same with OpenEHR and FIRE. Why wouldn't they be able to work together? There, there are many ways we can work forward. Mm-hmm. How often do you get asked what's the best standard or combination of standards <laughs> that we should use? Less now than before, I must admit. When I worked at Sonoma CT, I was asked that a lot, especially when walking, talking to member countries and the EC, etc. asking what should we use. Now it's more talking about strategy. How should we move forward? How can we make sure that everyone gets to use what they have and what they want to have with being in, in competition. The way you describe it, it sounds that uh, we are making a lot of progress because still when you say interoperability, I guess the first association in healthcare is a huge headache because of everything that we said, too many standards, mm. good standards, how can they work together? Can you think of any well-executed or exemplary cases of interoperability projects in Europe? Sure. I think I would say one that I worked in uh, for a long time, which was EPSOS. EPSOS was a, a European combined project. And we, we had the goal to be able to exchange healthcare data and healthcare prescriptions between countries. And what we did was actually to bring out both semantically and technical interoperability cases and specifications on how that should be transferred. And even though uh, we don't speak about EPSOS anymore, the specifications that were drawn out, they're actually the ones that are the basics for what's going on in the EU right now with my health data and the patient rights directive that, that shows that the, the right of the patient to get healthcare elsewhere and, and to get the prescriptions. So a lot of work was put in. I wouldn't say that it was easy. It was a hard, uh, hard nut to crack. And we had uh, extensions uh, several times to move forward but we managed to get a good product out. It wasn't the products and the interoperability that was a hinder in getting uh, implementation moving forward. It was more the political and the structural aspects of legally sending healthcare data between countries. Mm-hmm. That was more of a hinder than the, the interoperability parts. So I think that was a great example. And there are quite a number of EU projects uh, that has shown success and there are a lot of cross-border projects that has shown success in how it actually works. Mm-hmm. 
And how can we get from just this individual project that shows success to solutions that are long-lasting? I'm really glad that you mentioned EPSOS. It was a three-year project that included 12 EU member states. It started 10 years ago, and uh, after the end, it felt as if nothing larger happened. Even today, mm -hmm. it's actually really difficult to find anything about the project. I knew about it like five years ago, and then I tried to search for it in, in Google, and I couldn't find anything and then I finally found the name again while looking at your CV and I was like so happy <laughs> that I finally it, it wasn't an, an, an imaginary project in my head it was actually something that happened looking at that project which was successful and thinking about the desires of the European health data space and the idea of connecting, I think, 25 countries by 2025, it makes me a little bit skeptical. Uh, to which extent are we going to achieve lasting change based on the past? It was a successful project, but now it's nowhere to be found. Yeah. So like I said, it is actually, I was talking to an old EPSOS colleague uh, who works at the European Commission right now, and, and he told me that, Anna, it's really cool. Every time we bring out a specification, it actually says EPSOS in the file name. So it is there. It's just that EPSOS was a project that we handed over. But the idea of uh, national contact points, the idea of a central, uh, centrally support system to share that data, that exists in undertaking and it's ongoing. Uh, the Commission took on a big role of maintaining parts of it so that national countries could the member states could focus on their own data sets and, and their own processes. So it does exist, but EPSOS in its sense is gone with the wind. And I would say that the difference between that wasn't, I've been in a couple of, of EU projects, uh, big and small. I think the big difference that was between EPSOS and the fact that it's actually running now in some, especially some neighboring countries, because I said that the legal issues were still there when we ended EPSOS. The success with EPSOS, it was that it was a huge amount of member countries that said, we want this. It wasn't the EC saying, it wasn't some difficult, different players around in EU or European countries that said, we want to try this, researchers, hospital. This was member countries. This was governments stating, we need to look at how we can progress in doing this. So there were 20, end of the day, it was 27 member countries that said, we want to reach this. And that's the commitment you need to be able to go to the next step and actually do a, a national-wide implementation. It isn't a national-wide implementation today, but I'm quite sure that's gonna happen because there's still that wish to move forward. That is, there is still that uh, commitment that the member countries did back in 2011, even earlier, um, that to make, for, to make this happen, to move forward. But there are a lot of projects that are going on in EU. There are a few member countries and there are a few central hospitals or central research bodies, but that doesn't mean that the level that needs to pay for it, <laughs> that needs to push the implementation, that level is committed to moving forward in it. So the fact that we created the eHealth network and my state secretary was very uh, much involved in that together with a number of other countries being pushy was the need of that. We need a high political commitment and uh, interest in e-health issues to be able to move forward. And the European Commission can put down legal requirements that you need to do this to be able to get either funding or whatever it is, but we do need the national commitment as well so that to move forward, to actually inc include those services as part of the national core, because without that, we're not gonna move forward.
Mm -hmm. And we do see a lot of kind of interest and even financial commitments across Europe to progress with digitalization, largely due to, to COVID, but that doesn't matter. There is so two important factors, the, the political willpower, the money is there. So how do you observe that based on your uh, very extensive experiences in achieving interoperability in what it takes to make uh, successful projects in e-health? How do you observe the way Europe is developing and the idea of the European health data space where you will be a patient and regardless of which doctor in Europe you're going to visit, that doctor could access your electronic health records or data from patient registries mm. or even genomics data? Good question. Basically, I think the Commission is pushing for this. So trying to, and it's not formal yet, as if I understand it, but they're trying to push the moving forward with end of the day, the patient rights directive and implementing that also in, in real life, so to say, not on paper in the availability of data, no matter where you are in Europe. And uh, they can get quite far with putting the, the legal rights down for the patient. I think, and I guess I'm a little bit negative. But I think unless they get the member countries to commit to the fact that doing that in a in a smart way, moving with smart e-health applications to give that availability for the patients, there will be detours. And there will be, a, a, yes, you can access your digital uh, healthcare data, but it will be uh, as easy as possible for the member countries unless they see the meaning of doing it. What I see in, in the positive sense is that the Commission also uh, has agreed part of the funding, for example, for implementing standards, because what EPSOS showed and what we see today is that the standards are necessary to ensure that the healthcare data being transferred from one country to another, where the languages are so different, there needs to be standards involved. Otherwise, we will struggle. There will be a lot of interpreters involved in, in, in reading that data if it comes in the mother tongue of the patients. Putting some money behind it, yes, that's going to move forward, especially in countries where money might be an issue, moving towards implementing standards need a push. And the European Commission can give that push. But in more richer countries and countries that are having uh, have gone further in their development, changing their standards or changing the way they work, that needs to be an agreement, not as a legal requirement, is my theory. To, mm -hmm. to have success in implementing that, that my EU health platform. That's what I see at least, um, but it is great that they're moving towards that. Absolutely. We'll see in just a few years uh, how far we've come. And in the last kind of three episodes uh, in discussions with other speakers who talked about Finland, uh, Norway and uh, Denmark, various uh, things were uh, mentioned. For example, Finland is very known for the way they uh, created the secondary use of data space. So they have a very clear mm -hmm. regulation for that. So a lot of opportunities to use healthcare data, not just for 
for healthcare treatment purposes, but also for research purposes. And then what was mentioned for Denmark was exactly that the digital infrastructure has been there for ages, but now the challenge is to get the political willpower to create a digital infrastructure which is not as visible as if you, for example, mm. build a new hospital and that's not as sexy for politics, uh, which makes it a problem. Mm. So I don't know, is there anything that you would say that maybe other countries could learn from the Norwegian or the Nordic countries and any just any use cases of good digitalization practices? I think looking at the Nordics, there's been some bad media and some good media in looking at the huge investments that's been done, for example, in Denmark, um, Norway, Sweden as well. And the fact that the structure of our healthcare system is it is as it is, you cover a huge population. So implementing an EHR in one region in Sweden is it, it, equivalent to a one of the biggest hospital groups in the West, for example. And it's hard to recognize that sometimes. So I think one of the things that I see, and I believe I see them in all Nordic countries that I think should be looked at is collaboration. There's a lot of uh, effort put into, for example, the regions and the municipalities talking together and trying to establish the best way forward for there's been in Sweden today, there, there are collaboration networks between the regions where they pitch in and they do some of the work jointly rather than on their own. And I think moving forward, especially with interoperability and being able to, to share data in, in a, an efficient and, and patient safe way, there needs to be that collaboration. And uh, in countries where it's more divided, it can be Belgium, Germany, there's states. That collaboration is, seems, at least from where I'm coming from, hard to achieve. And perhaps there is something from the Nordic countries that can be looked at in how we've structured those collaborations, because there are sovereign regions and they have their own mandate. But despite that, they see the benefit of working together and putting joint efforts in, so using men power collaboratively to move forward in, in reaching results. Uh, and I see that especially in interoperability, and that's been a very important to move forward. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. In the upcoming weeks, you're going to hear a discussion with an AI expert from Australia, a nurse who changed her career and moved into healthcare IT and cybersecurity. We're going to discuss the progress made with VR, and more. Stay tuned.